sit, enjoy the shade. Hey, brother, pour the wine. Drink the drink that I have made. Hey, brother, pour the wine. Tell you why the day is Welcome, everybody. Welcome to Drink in the Style, brought to you by Habitation Design and the District of Dinah. I'm your host, Gregory Rich. All right. Tonight's theme, pure creativity. We are joined once again, after quite a while, I might add, by Carter Averbeck, the owner of Omform, or Omforme, if you are a classy sort, design. He is a designer, he is an artist, and uh, he's a visionary, all wrapped up in one package. Carter, how are you? I'm doing swell. <laughs> All right, that was a little bit of a letdown after that introduction, but you know, whatever. <laughs> you play it. You play Carter, Carter. All right, sitting in the Dan Newkirk Memorial Coctological Chair is a new face, actually, a new addition to Habitation Furnishing and Design, none other than Jackie Taylor. Jackie, welcome to your inaugural appearance. Thank you. Are you excited? I'm excited, a little nervous, um, but I think this drink will help once it's served. <laughs> it always does. So what drink are we drinking? Okay, so Carter said he liked tropical drinks. I hope that's right. Yep. And my favorite fruit is pineapple, so we're having a pineapple mojito. Woohoo! This is where we need the little uh, applause thing that we talked about last week, Johnson. Well, that'll work, Carter. Thank you. I appreciate your enthusiasms. All right. Why don't you tell us how you make this? And, Johnson, you can hit us with our mixing music. Okay. So I first added the mint leaves to this shaker. Mm -hmm. And then I smashed them up with a mud muddler. You muddled. I muddled. A woman's got to muddle. I muddled those mint leaves. Then I added some white rum, two ounces of white rum, an ounce of lime juice, an ounce of pineapple juice and some simple syrup. One ounce of that. Okay. And then some ice and... And shake. Shaking it. Beautiful. I'm going to pour it in these glasses and add some club soda. All right. So she's pouring them into rocks glasses that do indeed have rocks. Um, and the club soda is kind of key because it's such a sweet drink normally there are others that have forgotten that you have to cut that a little bit otherwise it's like sucking on a lollipop does that seem right carter yeah all right but i love pineapple see we, we aim to please we are all about service here at drink in the style the club soda is going in of course at uh, the district we have a soda siphon which is always fun all right and then for a garnish and now we introduced Jackie to the fine art of mint slapping yesterday, did we not? Yeah, you actually didn't show me how it's done, so maybe you need to. I'd be happy to. How do you slap mint? You slap mint to release the oils. You simply place it just like you would think in your hand. Now, smell it. now it's like ten times stronger. You've released the oils. All right, well, I'll put that one in your drink. Yeah, Newkirk was a big mint slapper. Uh, rest in peace. It's such a shame. All right, so we have now a pineapple mojito prepared, fresh, properly slapped. It concerns me that you're so good at that. 
um, and ready to be tried. So let's give it a quick uh, sip and see what we think. Cheers. Yeah, that's really good. What do you think, Carter? Works for me. Yeah. Jackie, you've done nice work. Thank you. It's the right amount of sweetness. The uh, the rum is a bit forward. You can taste a, a, a little bit, which is a good thing. Um, and yeah, and the mint makes it perfect. It's late. It's getting to be fall, so not necessarily mojito season. But you know what? Why not bring a little summer into this part of the year? Yep. Agree, Johnson? Oh, absolutely. On a day, well, we're recording on oh Thursday, which was a very cold day here in Minnesota. So yes. it it is cold, wet, rainy. We are preparing for winter. All right, so we have our drinks. We started with our tequila shots. I'm feeling pretty good. Let's jump into a random question. Carter, are you ready? I am ready. All right, today's totally not random, random question. It's an opinion. Some have said that the color gray does not exist, that gray is simply colors we cannot see. Do you believe that's true? We have so much gray around that I would like to not see it, but unfortunately, <laughs> I do. Fair. So you think it is? So you think gray is gray in and of itself? Gray is gray in, in and of itself. I mean, I, you know, with my art background, I know how to mix the color gray. So mm-hmm. as far as I'm concerned, I can see it. It's a fair point. I mean, the question would be if you were watch like an old black and white movie. I mean, there were colors there, but they're black and white. They're only gray to that medium, but. The color itself, if you actually stop and think about it, if it is actually a color we cannot see, if and when aliens arrive, we may be the most aesthetically unattractive dressing, designing people in the entire universe. Because God knows, since we use so much gray, what color that could potentially be. But you don't believe it. No, um, because if you can't see gray, can you see any other color? Well, I mean, there are a lot of questions about whether the colors that we see are the same colors to begin with. That is to say, if you are wearing, for example, a blue denim shirt right now, since childhood, you've been told that the color you're looking at is, in fact, blue. But that doesn't mean that we're seeing the same color. It just means that we are agreeing that whatever we are seeing is going to be called blue. But there's no definitive way. I don't care what kind of spectrometer you choose to use. There is no way to guarantee that the process of visualization followed by mental interpretation leads to the exact same view. So you may call it blue. I may call it blue. But you may see purple and I may see green. But we just agree whatever this is is going to be called blue. You can make that argument. Yes. Thank you very much. <laughs> Smoked a lot of dope in college. <laughs> okay. That maybe could account for your color sense and maybe mine's different. A fair point. No, that's a fair point. I generally see green in one form or another. But uh, Jackie, what do you think? I think his shirt is denim. Mm-hmm. And it may oh. be – and it is blue. Are we talking about the gray? Well, we're talking about the color of the uh, – whether we're seeing the same color when we talk about blue. Yeah, I see blue. Mm-hmm. But I would – Call it a chambray or a denim shirt. Fair enough. Fair enough. So you guys are both absolutely solidly grounding in conventional interpretations of these co- of, of color. Of basic colors, yeah. Now, mm-hmm. undertones is a very different thing. Mm-hmm. You can see a purple blue. I could see a green blue. Somebody mm-hmm. else could see a gray blue. 
So, and that's just the physiology of our eyesights for each person. Mm-hmm. But if I were to make a painting and I used a certain set of colors and I asked people to interpret it, mm-hmm. most people would be able to pick out the basic colors that a, a painting of mine is made from. Now, undertones, very different story. Mm-hmm. It's a fair point. I mean, and it's and it's absolutely accurate. But if what it doesn't go against the point that I was making, which is, we may agree it's blue, but we're not necessarily seeing the exact same thing. But it could be brought out through the undertone discussion. Although, frankly, that's the exact same thing. Point is that so many things are subjective, and in my opinion, everything, everything is well. Is a horse a horse? Is a horse a horse? Well, why wouldn't a horse be a horse? It could be a pony. Could be a donkey. Could be a hippopotamus. We've been told our entire lives that this certain animal is a horse. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's not. Oh, so that would be more of an LSD question, I suppose. <laughs> um, <laughs> but we in that case, that. I don't know. <laughs> Fair enough. All right. Well, we should take a quick break. And when we come back, uh, we will just simply agree that colors are as we all see them and that way we can move forward. Sound right? Mm-hmm. All right. Ladies and gentlemen, you are listening to Drink in the Style right here on AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota. Take a minute off. Too busy making Someday you say you Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to Drink in the Style, rung in by the incomparable, late Amy Winehouse. Great song, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, uh, I heard that years ago on the radio. I think on The Current, uh, uh, originally, I called my wife and said, I just heard this awesome song. She looked it up on Napster back in the day, listened to the whole album. And then she said, uh, there's another song that you're going to love a great deal. And it was me and Mr. Jones. Do you have the album? Do I? Yeah. Yes, I do. And you know the song? Yes, I do. The first line? Don't ask me to sing. (laughs) What kind of is this? Yep. And the word became basically the complete and total foundation of my vocabulary. Yeah. Johnson, did you catch that? I did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we got the little beep noise in there. Damn. We need a new beep noise, though. We do need a new beep noise. Well, we'll have to keep our ears open. Are we still using the Amy woohoo? Uh, I've used that a few times. Otherwise, I've gone with a very boring uh, beep noise as well. We cannot abide that. You give me plenty of opportunities to choose which ones to go with. So Right? I mean, how much more can I do for you? Exactly. Yeah, I, mean, I get a variety of beep noises. I mean, Jesus. Does that get beeped? Thank you very much. Out of context. (laughs) Fair enough. All right. So once again, uh, Carter Aberbeck from Umform Designs. I wish you did call it Umforme. It just sounds so nice. I like that better. Mm -hmm. However, nobody else can pronounce it very easily. It doesn't roll off the tongue that easy. So – it's it's tricky. It also it sounds French, but you say it's Norwegian. It is Norwegian. Yep, it's a word that means to transform. There it is. I shall umforme this cocktail into something else. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, all right. My vocabulary is enriched. Let's talk about sustainable design because this is one of your passions and something that you are well known for. Let's start this way. When we say sustainable furniture, what have you, what does it mean to you? Well, I think that the better question really is me asking that of other people. The only reason is because people hear the term sustainable design all the time, but they don't really know what it means. So I ask them, what do you think it means? And it's interesting some of the answers that come about. Such as? Such as they think of terms of upcycling where you take uh, old mason jars and turn it into light fixtures. Right. And that's a form of sustainable design. But really sustainable design is meaning um, you build everything around a circular economy. Mm-hmm. Not a cyclical economy. So basically something that can be continuously utilized in one form or another. Absolutely. Yeah, it's not something that a person or a consumer purchases mm-hmm. and then they use it up and then they throw it out and then they go back and they get another one. Mm-hmm. That is a cyclical economy. You're constantly creating the cycle over and over again. Mm-hmm. So the way I describe it is – Have you ever had coffee out of a styrofoam cup? Of course, sadly. Well, then you use that up, you throw it out, and then you go get more coffee Mm -hmm. in a styrofoam cup. Right. So that's cyclical. Circular is taking your own coffee mug and having it refilled. Mm -hmm. So nothing goes into a landfill. It It stays within the same usage ecosystem. Yep. And if it goes outside of that system, it becomes a part of another system, hopefully, that is circular in nature. Uh, It goes into a recycling system, which is part – it's that – the in-between point. So you have cyclical, recyclable, and circular. I like to try and work in the circular realm Mm -hmm. through my design business. So let's talk about that. How does sustainable design specifically apply first to furniture and furnishings? Um, It's really easy. It's taking older furnishings or previously used furnishings Mm -hmm. and then reviving them. And um, it's been really interesting, the studies that go around where there's now in the United States alone over 9 billion pounds of furniture gets thrown out every year. Nine billion pounds? Yeah. Wow. 7.5 billion comes from Ikea. But uh... (laughs) not quite. But uh, is Ikea a sponsor for your show? (laughs) Not anymore. Okay. (laughs) No, but that is an incredible number. And of course, you know, trash is America's number one export as well. Mm -hmm. We really dominate the world in trash production. USA, USA, USA as they say. Um, so how does one reuse or what, what is your take on keeping furniture in that cycle? Is it simply always integrating the existing pieces into a new setting or I mean – Could be. Mm-hmm. There's a couple of ways of doing it. So um, there are cycles in the furniture trend world just mm-hmm. like there is in the fashion world. So in fashion, you see uh, – Fashion uh, recycling ideas like every usually 10 to 15 years. Mm -hmm. In the furniture world, it's somewhere around 25 to 30 years. Mm -hmm. And so, for instance, it's 2022. We're looking at styles that were from the 1990s, which were styles from the 1960s, which were styles from the 1930s. So as far as uh, 
picking up older pieces of furniture, you can find a style and revive it to something that is very current to, day, to today's consumers' ideals of what something should look like, which is usually a color palette or a pattern palette. Mm-hmm. So you do, and one of the things that first uh, uh, impressed me about the work that you do is the furniture, complete and total furniture revitalization, if I can call it that, mm-hmm. taking a vintage chair and putting just some crazy, fabulous fabrics on it, uh, bringing back, refinishing the whole thing. Is that something that's always been a part of what you've wanted to do? Or did you one day just walk in and say, you know, that's a cool chair, but it would look a hell of a lot better with a partridge fabric on it? I grew up doing it. Did you? My family did it. Um, One of the things that we would do is we would go to auction houses or literally garage sales or, you know, uh, secondhand stores, and we would pick up things with great lines. <clears throat> mm-hmm. And then my mother and I would pour over catalogs like Architectural Digest and House Beautiful and all the big magazines of the day and go, okay, can we make this furniture looks like, look like what's in that magazine? Mm-hmm. And then that's how we would work it out. It's in the blood. It's in the blood, Fair. yeah. You also do, of course, and we talked about this in the past, but the very cool process of turning indoor furniture into outdoor furniture Yes. By dipping it essentially in rubber, correct? Yes. And people think it's the wildest thing. They don't know what to think of it until they see some pieces. Which they can actually see, and how's this for a shameless plug, at the District Edina, where we had, uh, what, five fabulous chairs dipped in black, round backs, and then you got this kind of ornate. Is it six? Okay, six. Yeah, six chairs in total. Well, in total, Four of the or five of them are kind of round backs, and then one is the very ornate one that you dipped in, like the apple green mm-hmm. uh, rubber. People absolutely love them. They're astonished. And one of the weird things about them that caught me by surprise was how supple the rubber is. You'd think that when you sat down on it and you're sitting down on a cushioned seat, it would be a little bit stiff or it might crack or something like that. But it's – I mean it's beautiful. It's perfect. Yeah, and it's a it was a way of saving those six chairs from a landfill, mm-hmm. and uh, the rubber on those chairs. I know there's a little touch up we need to do on them, but not mm-hmm. much. But the rubber generally will last ten to fifteen years, so that means you've staved off throwing these chairs off for ten to fifteen years. Now, let's say ten to fifteen years from now, if you want to redip them in rubber, you can, and they'll last even longer. As long as the structure is, you know. Solid, mm-hmm. you're good to go. And this is something that you can do if someone has chairs that they really want to keep or something that you know you do where you procure the pieces yeah. and then sell it. I mean, they are awesome. And again, I know it's kind of shameless to say this, but uh, if this intrigues you guys, come down to the District of Dina and you can actually see and sit in these uh, these absolutely wonderful chairs. And you know how I came up with that concept is um, – Kind of a need, mm-hmm. trying to find outdoor furniture that was cool. Yes, yes. That's not easy. No, it's terrible. I mean, it's. I mean, almost everybody has that same god awful plastic faux rattan type of stuff mm-hmm. or hard plastic that has nothing. We have uh, recently put out a vignette from Bernhardt's outdoor furniture line, um, and I mean that's incredible. Those feel like indoor furniture, but they're all made with umbrella fabrics and reinforced. Uh, 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 frames, mm-hmm. but the stuff that you're doing is literally and definitionally unique. 
Yeah, it's definitely – it, all of my furniture, I have this theory of if I create it to look like pieces of artwork, mm-hmm. then it goes beyond people's expectations of what upcycled or revived or sustainable furniture can look like. Mm-hmm. So my goal is to make sure that anything that I touch and put out there is something that looks like it could belong in a showroom or in a big box store because the only way you can change a lot of minds is to show them something that's so cool that they have no idea that it is sustainable or that it was upcycled. They're just going for the coolness factor. Yeah. And then after they purchase it, you can tell them, oh, by the way, you just saved a tree by picking this up. Amen. No, amen. You know, and another quick question, though, because – and I know we're getting a little long on this one. Johnson, don't yell at me. But um, when you – so this is how you're taking – previous furniture, revitalizing it, so on. You are able, you in a general sense, of course, to buy new furniture, mm-hmm. but there are critical things that you should probably be looking for if it's going to be sustainable, correct? And yes. What are those? What, what's your advice in that? Uh, a lot of times if it's like an upholstered piece, you're looking for hardwood frames, mm-hmm. right? Um, simply because those frames are going to last a very long time. Um, you should be looking at furniture that has the ability to be reupholstered. Mm-hmm. And believe it or not, there's a lot of fast furniture out there now where there is no intention for it to be reupholstered. None. You, you literally buy it on average one to five years is when that piece is going to fall apart. And then you throw it out. You cannot revive it or reupholster it. It's made out of inferior materials. And and it's not as easy as saying, well, yeah, that's just the stuff they sell at Ikea or Slumberland. There are national retailers, you know, who I would not be so bold as to name. You know, I'm not going to pick up hardware barn at this place. It's not the right spot. Wait, you just said those names. Did I? <laughs> oh, that's awkward. Johnson, you can bleep that out, right? Yeah, we'll just make it a one long bleep. That would be fantastic. So if bleep out restoration hardware and pottery barn. <laughs> And, uh, and and I'll appreciate that because I don't want to get in any trouble. But, I mean, they have some nice furniture. But truthfully, if you cut those open, if you take a look, Restoration does have cardboard built into some of their chairs and their pieces. And there's a point where with traditional upholstery, there are some cardboard things that you put in place. Mm-hmm. But when you use that as part of the structure and not as something that helps the structure, mm-hmm. that's where some of those quality issues come into play. And – Furniture now for the past, what, 25 years has been designed to be fast furniture, mm-hmm. which is it becomes obsolete in a determined amount, predetermined amount of time. Planned obsolescence. And then you have to throw it out and get new. Yeah. And there's two whole generations now who are not agreeing with that. So manufacturers better get hip real quick. Agreed. Agreed. Because you know what? This whole disposable culture of ours we think of as being eternal. It wasn't. It was basically something that was created after World War II, planned to be obsolete, a whole new concept. I mean the whole concept of recycling was foolishness to begin with because it's the manufacturers who should have been handling reusable items and not putting the pressure on on the consumer to try to recycle. And you know, so it's been a phase. It's been a it's been a seventy year, I think, phase that eventually is going to be completely pushed aside, or at least I hope it will. I don't know if they're going to bring back the pickle barrel, but I think they are going to bring back milk in you know glass. Well, you know, Gen Z is the generation where the pendulum is swinging back. Yeah, 
So they're the ones that are being called the new Edwardians and not because they're, they've got a grandpa, grandma mindset. They just have a mindset of, okay, if I can fix it, that's what I'm going to do mm-hmm. instead of buy it, use it, and throw it out. We'll leave that to the baby boomers. A.K.A. Yes. the locust generation. No offense to any of my listeners who are out there. I think I'll just piss everybody off today. Um, all right. We should probably take a quick break. And when we come back, I don't know. I think I'll talk about the Welsh or, or something like that. Johnson, does that seem fair? Oh, yeah. They they haven't been uh, gone after in a while. So No. See, once again, slipping under the radar just like a Welshman. That's where that expression comes from. All right. Ladies and gentlemen, drinking this time. <laughs> possibly final episode. (laughs) This is Gregory Rich. We'll be back in just a moment. Here's the list of things that Gregory is checking. Welcome back to Drink in the Style, Saturdays at 7, Sundays at 5 here in Minneapolis on AM 950 and uh, podcasted through Spotify and iTunes and Jimmy's Podcast Emporium, my own personal favorite. Um, you are listening to Gregory Rich. I am joined by Jackie Taylor in the Coctological Chair. Coctologist. Uh, you are the Coctologist. Are you good with the term? I'm okay good. with it. Excellent. Is that what we're calling it? I thought it was mixologist, but it's cocktologist. He changed it. Okay, I like it. The late Dan Newkirk hated the term mixologist. He said nobody, nobody liked to be called a mixologist. It's just no. That's, that's a, you're just a crappy little. You know, I'm a guy who throws <laughs> in the glass. And I'm like, no, dude, you are a master of cocktails. You are a cocktologist. Does that work? Yeah. <laughs> Okay. And it has stayed ever since then. So, yeah, congratulations. It's a it, it's an honor, and I Thank hope you. you're appreciating it. All right, Carter, let's talk about art because you are an acclaimed artist. You are both a muralist and a traditional artist uh, in terms of scale and scope, correct? Um, yeah, I've got a degree in fine arts, and I studied over in Europe uh, under a scholarship to learn fresco work. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Now, frescoes and murals, what is the difference? Uh, there is no difference. You know, you do mural work with fresco. Okay. Could, mural work is just basically large-scale paintings, usually on a wall or a canvas that hangs on the wall, mm-hmm. covers an entire wall. Okay. So, um, But I studied um, obscure painting techniques over in Europe. So Buon Fresco, Secco Fresco, Gradisca painting, learning how to mix my own paints out of natural materials. All of that. So that's fantastic. Where in Europe uh, did you study? Barcelona. Really? Yeah. I've not been actually, but yeah, everybody thinks it's Italy, but Italy doesn't hold the uh, record count of where fresco began. At you know, really? Europe in general. Really, it was all over. So once again, so fresco and mural means the same thing. They can. Uh, it's just large format art. Yeah, fresco is a certain type of painting. So you're painting on. A mixture of sand and plaster, okay. and if it's wet, uh, it's called buon fresco, and that's what Michelangelo did, where you paint on wet plaster, and then it, there's a chemical process where it bond, where the paint bonds in with the uh, 
the plaster. Mm-hmm. I, I won't go into it because it's going to bore everyone. But it gets uh, it, it becomes more permanent. Mm-hmm. And then there's secco fresco, and that's when the church became ultra controlling and religious and decided to paint. Uh, loin cloths and things over everybody's, you <laughs> yes. know, and nether the, regions. And the little fig leaves that people think were original, but in fact are just... They weren't, yeah. You know, it's amazing. Did you know that, Jackie? Yeah, all yeah. the little fig leaves are all after the fact. The ancients did not care if privates were shown. Yeah, the the idea of the human body was to celebrate that. Mm-hmm. And there weren't any uh, way... There weren't any... Uh, sexual issues with that at all because sex was thought of very differently back in the time. Mm-hmm. So, But that was a couple thousand years ago. Once again, an educational program I here at Drinking the Style. Here. Right? Um, okay, so that's that's interesting. I mean, it really is. What's the largest piece that you've done? Well, I've done a lot of historical restoration work. Okay. Um, so there'd be churches that I've worked on. There's Right now, currently, there's a mansion that I'm working on mm-hmm. in St. Cloud, Minnesota. Okay. That doesn't really have so much fresco work, but it does have historical painting work that we're going to be doing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have all of this geek knowledge of old world techniques that I've been able to use in the 21st century. Mm. I mean, oh, yeah, no, old school. Uh, at some point, by the way, i got to talk to you. We've got a new client down in Panama. Mm-hmm. He's going to want some mural work done. Okay. Um, so I'm going to finally get a chance to see... You create from beginning to end a mural or a large format piece. I'm really excited about it. Oh, that would be really fun. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, it's totally cool. Now, what about the smaller pieces or doing some of the more, you know, stretched canvas types of, of pieces? Do, yeah. do you do that a lot or is that something it's I not I do do that and I do that for a lot of photographers. Uh, like Shelly Mossman is one of my really close friends and I've done a lot of work for her. Shelly uh, those is one are of the usually arc, uh, loose canvases that are maybe 9 feet by 12 feet or maybe 10 by 30 feet. Mm-hmm. So they're smaller mm-hmm. if you can – consider that smaller but that's smaller and they're loose so they're they're not on the frame they can be rolled up and transported and Mm -hmm. you know and that's i mean do you have a preference between the two or they're just both what they are they're both what they are Mm -hmm. you know as long as i get to be creative doesn't matter the medium for me Mm -hmm. um i'm a more of an artist for hire in the sense of what do you want me to do Mm -hmm. as opposed to an artist that has a certain aesthetic that you create and then you hang your shingle out and say, here's my artwork, buy it. Mm-hmm. So I'm the, I'm the former. It's like I've trained in all of these ways to create different styles of artwork. And as long as you've got something that I can create, mm-hmm. we're good. You're good. So who do you think – so who have been influences on you? Oh, my God. Every artist on the planet. Because <laughs> I don't like lived. to stick with one genre. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I don't like to be a one note myself, and I am continuously educating myself on new artists, new techniques, new ways of doing things, and I'm combining that with all the old world techniques that are already in my head and in my hands. Fair and and a, and a good, a good neutral answer, like a true Welshman. Nicely done. Sorry, had to slap the Welshman <laughs> a, a little bit on that. Uh, <laughs> 
<laughs> I mean, a lot of the work that I've seen that you've done, though, has been – I mean, I've seen a lot of Renaissance-style work. Yeah. Um, we're going to talk in the next segment about this amazing project that uh, that you did and we're having a book signing for uh, uh, next week. But you know, have you ever done anything contemporary or, or would you if somebody came and said, I want something? Absolutely. And I've done contemporary. Have you? As a matter of fact, I've done sculptural Venetian plaster techniques that are very contemporary. Really? Yeah. And where can – so can people see examples of your work just in general on your site? They can see the works on my website. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, uh, there is – I used to do a lot of work in restaurants. Okay. So you could see works in restaurants, but that's more of the things like the Venetian plasters. Um, I've done a lot of mural work for Richard D'Amico. Oh, really? Okay. Worked in Actually, all of yes. his restaurants. Didn't you do the floor plan or basically do the design of D'Amico's to begin with? I worked with Richard for a long time, mm-hmm. and I still work with Richard on doing decorative finishes and, and mural work and things like that for his restaurants. He's also had me do uh, artwork on mirrors and other surfaces. Really? And that's, it's, it's a fantastic relationship that I have with him. He's one of my favorite clients to work with because he's so open-minded to things. And also a fantastic restaurateur. Yes. And the creator of uh, Minnesota's, one of Minnesota's most, I, what do you call it, uh, 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 well-known and idealized restaurant groups Yes, that, uh, that we've all enjoyed a great deal, especially since I think it's Tuesday they have unlimited wine or Sunday. Uh, Where is this restaurant? <laughs> D'Amico and Sons at Dinah Wyzetta, a bunch of them all over the place. All right. We're going to take one last break. And when we come back, though, we're going to be talking about Carter's latest project uh, in partnership with a couple of other fantastic Minnesotans. So uh, refill your mojito, do a shot of tequila, and uh, join us back here in just a couple of minutes. And every shadow You know the night time Is the right time Welcome back to Drink in the Style brought to you by Habitation Design and the District. I'm Gregory Rich. This is our final segment, and this is going to be perhaps the most exciting because we're going to tell you guys about the coolest thing that's going on in Minneapolis. We are joined by Carter Averbeck from Omform May uh, Design. Carter, before I forget, how do people take a look at the amazing stuff that you do? Uh, social media. Pretty much like everybody else, except that I'm really not on Facebook so much. It's just Instagram. Okay. And I've never been on Twitter because I don't understand Twitter. But you get a real visual experience without a doubt on Instagram. So it's Insta. And the Insta handle is? Um, Form Design. Spelled O-M-F-O-R-M-E. Yep. Design. All one string. Yep. All right. You guys go check it out and we'll also uh, on our Drink in the Style website, uh, we'll put a couple pictures of some of your, your pieces because I'd be proud to display them. They're very, very cool. Oh, thank you. My pleasure. All right. So we were talking a little bit about your painting uh, experience. Now, you have been uh, working on a project that has come to fruition recently with Minneapolis-owned Tina Wilcox, um, who is an 
absolutely fabulous person, a marketing guru, um, a bon vivant, a, a just a, a, a true She's wonderful She's a visionary. Character. She is a visionary. I Without agree. a doubt. So talk about the project. So, well, I'll start. So she has uh, created a book, and that book is a collection of vignettes that she created based on the concept of ethical taxidermy, correct? It's on the ethical treatment or the humane treatment of animals. Mm -hmm. So this is one of the interesting things about the book. Uh, The book uses humanely procured taxidermy Mm -hmm. to tell stories um, to get people to understand and be kinder to animals. Mm -hmm. So uh, the whole thing is if animals could speak our language, what would our interactions be like with them? It'd be totally different. Goes without saying, certainly. You know, we, we'd, we'd have different styles of communication. Um, things would be, probably be more cohesive, I would think. <clears throat> but because we don't have that, a lot of people treat animals as if they're secondary mm-hmm. or lower on the rank, and mm-hmm. they are not. Um, science is proving all the time that there are feelings within animals that we also have as human beings. Mm-hmm. So... Your dog and your cat, you can kind of tell when they're happy or sad. Absolutely. Absolutely. They are sentient. They are aware. And I was actually just looking. I was watching a squirrel uh, on my drive-in this morning, and he ran across the road. And, you know, my heart always stops because I don't want to kill a squirrel. I did once, by the way, run over an albino squirrel by accident. And I think that's responsible for a lot of things that have happened to me since then, and I probably deserve them. But it was terrible. I was driving, and I saw the little guy, and I tried to break, but couldn't do it, and he just shot right out the back, and I knew that there was going to be some kind of Native American punishment that I was going to endure as a result of this bad luck. I know. I felt terrible. But I was watching the squirrel this morning, and the squirrel is running across the street, and I'm thinking, you know, that is some high-level thinking that the squirrel is doing. He is judging cars that are coming. He is judging the speed at which they're coming. He is making a determination on when it's safe to cross the road. I mean, my kids didn't do that until they were like 12. Mm -hmm. And yet people just write it all off. So you guys, and and Tina, of course, is passionate about uh, appreciation of animals. And one of the ways that she is displaying that is by taking animals that have humanely and ethically passed away. Um, They have been uh, memorialized through taxidermy. Mm Mm-hmm. And then she created vignettes that uh, were photographed with backdrops that you yourself painted, correct? Yeah. So to even be a little bit more succinct, we're not just photographing taxidermy as taxidermy. These She created entire characters, meaning that these, like, these animals have costumes, a lot of them are medieval costumes or they're really fanciful costumes. She's created entire stories for these animals. Mm-hmm. And it's it's this great sort of like area where it's a Brother Grimm's fairy tale that can um, be enjoyable by children, but then very much so by adults as well. Unquestionably. And she put them all into a book. It's just beautiful coffee table book with this unbelievable, you know, finish and quality and and the photographs. And then she would write, uh, and then you did the backdrops. Yes. And then she would write a vignette uh, story on the opposite page that is hypothesizing 
with this uh, this person, I think is the right way to put it, their life would have been or was uh, from kind of a, a, I don't know if you'd call it a fairy tale, because some of the stories are a little grim. Um, well, Grimm's fairy tales. Yeah, you know, I set that up for you, didn't I? Yeah. Yeah, sorry about it. Well done, well done. <laughs> um, but it is absolutely, it is an absolutely gorgeous production. And it's, it again, it's it's hard to express because taxidermy implies a lack of respect for an animal. But what she is saying is that it is honoring the animal. It's honoring the animal. The, the way taxidermy is uh, seen as a bad thing is when you look at trophy hunters, mm-hmm. people who just kill an animal just to kill an animal. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and when you look at other cultures, let's say the Native American culture, you know, there's a whole reason that if you end the life of an animal, you you have all of these avenues that you go through within your culture to respect what comes of that animal. Mm-hmm. So you, you don't just, you know, use it for sustenance, but you also, you know, give gratitude for everything else that that animal gave up so that you could live. So that's a very cultural way of looking at it, and I'm nowhere near probably um, an ex. Well, I know I'm not an expert on Native American culture, but they, they have a lot more respect than, let's say, um, the Caucasian culture. Yeah, um, it's one of the things that has made me an agnostic, uh, if I may, is is simply this: I don't understand why we have to eat animals. I mean, if there's an all-powerful critter up there who made everything, why aren't rocks edible? I mean, I would love to have a chocolate cake rock. That would be delightful. I would love to have a rock that tastes like steak. Could have been done if there's an all-powerful creature. And yet, instead, I have to take this adorable little critter and, you know, pigs, everyone says, are as smart as dogs, if not Mm -hmm. smarter. Um, Cows, I mean, I've seen incredible stories of cows doing things. And yet, he made them tasty. Well, you know, animals, uh, whoever is up above working things out made animals eat animals, too. Mm-hmm. So it's, All the worse. Yeah. I mean, you know, lions. I mean, it, it, it doesn't make any sense to me at all. But it does please the Lord, I guess. Um, the book, though, that is uh, is coming out, we have a book signing coming up next week. Mm-hmm. She is bringing in a lot of the taxidermied animals themselves, including the lion, the actual lion that is on mm-hmm. the cover of the book. And you guys will will have to put this on the site as well. It is breathtaking. I mean, it is literally the 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 perfect example of regal and royal presence. Mm-hmm. And you guys captured that so beautifully. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, you know, I worked with Tina on all the backdrops. We did quite a few of them, mm-hmm. um, each uh, for a specific character. And Shelley Mossman, as the photographer, well, she's just bar none amazing. Mm-hmm. She knows how to tell a story mm-hmm. incredibly well through photographs, uh, which is why Tina picked her up. Mm-hmm. And um, I actually didn't uh, have the job if it weren't for Shelley advocating for me. Really? Because I didn't know Tina. She obviously didn't know me. And uh, Shelley showed Tina some of my work. As a matter of fact, all of my work is sitting over at Shelley's because they're all backdrops for her photography business. Really? And Tina kept on asking who did the work. Oh, funny. So that's yeah. how So your work attracted her and Shelley connected the two of you. Yes. Oh, that's amazing. Well, it's, a good, it's a great combination of, of you guys because what you've done is absolutely 
brilliant. Um, so as I said, we do have the book signing next week, but following that, uh, Tina will be leaving a number of these animals um, on at the district at Habitation and in Governor's Lounge and Nine Mile Gallery as well. And it is a truly splendid experience. So folks, after uh, the 21st, um, for about a week, we will have these uh, beautiful pieces of art on display. And whether you're looking for furnishings or not, um, swing by the district uh, because they're just so cool. Is that supported by everyone? Mm-hmm. Excellent. All right. I'm going to ask you one more question before we have to head out, uh, if I may, Carter. Um, <laughs> this is kind of morbid, I admit. But you are a man of many talents. You've done an awful lot of stuff. If you could only be remembered for one thing that you've done, what would it be? Oh, that's a tough one. Um if I could be remembered for being able to open people's eyes to sustainability and beauty that's sitting around in front of us. Good for you. That's a great answer. I thought you were going to be equivocal. Try to, you know, this or that. No, that is, that is a great way to kind of encapsulate what you have accomplished and, and what I sense your, your career has been about. So kudos to you. Thank you. You're very welcome. All right. Well, there it is, my friends. We have drunk our way through yet another episode. On behalf of Habitation Design, the District of Dinah, and Carter Aberbeck from Omforme. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I'd like to wish everybody good luck this coming week. And I will finish with a quote from Mark Twain. The secret to getting ahead is getting started. Good night, everybody.